Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Josh Marshall podcast. We are continuing with our emphasis on the politics of abortion access in this country, which obviously at the moment has various um, political and, you know, electoral, political and uh, legal contexts. And so we're going to we're going to dig into a few of those. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about a few posts of mine, a few uh, posts from my uh, co-host Kate. And, you know, w- one thing just just to start off on today, one of the things we have been talking about is, you know, whether Roe and the Dobbs decision are going to become central issues in the midterm election. And that is looking at the question through a electoral political prism. But that is also the question of whether or not this is going to change in January of 2023. Is the midterm election going to possibly have the consequence of changing this all back? allowing the federal government to pass a law which basically reinstates all the protections under Roe, and then, you know, we're back to the status quo ante, or not. Are the Democrats going to have a terrible midterm, in which case, you know, nothing at all is going to happen on that front. And if they do have a terrible midterm, and if the Democrats lose the presidency in 2024, maybe you get a national ban on abortion that that Republicans pass in early uh 2025. It's pretty clear to me that someone is going to pass national legislation about abortion rights. It's just a question of who. And either party can do that when they, you know, control the entire federal government or when they control, um, well, may actually be control the entire federal government. But at least in this in this context, we're talking about controlling the, you know, the, the Congress and, and, and the presidency. So um, one thing I saw today, th- there a new poll is out from New York Times uh, Siena. You know, good, uh, a pretty pretty high caliber pollster. They continue to show which which something which really won't surprise any of us uh, at this point, which is that President Biden's approval levels are catastrophically bad. They are just so bad. It's 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 beyond even thinking. And one reason, you know, we've probably gotten used to this, but one reason to um, one thing to know about those is that presidents can be unpopular in different ways. And there's something specific about Biden here. The issue when he went from being so-so to really bad is not mostly that he's become. Uh, 
you know, he, he hasn't become less popular with Republicans. And to an extent, it's not so much that he's become less popular with independents. He's become less popular with Democrats. And obviously, that stems from different reasons. Republicans don't like him because he's a Democrat. To the extent that uh, they don't like him, you know, they would like him even less if he were a more aggressive Democrat. So a lot of his popularity is from Democrats who don't feel like he is he is doing what they want him to do as a Democratic president. Now, but the other thing is, and and you know, there was an inflation report out today uh, that showed inflation. I mean, you know, basically it's continuing where it's been in recent months, but it nudged up a little which is obviously not what anybody wants. It's particularly not what Democrats want, you know, three or four months out from the midterm election. Um, there's some reason to think, you know, most of, most of it was driven, it's, you know, it's backward looking. Most of it was driven by continued high energy prices, not just gas, energy prices in general. Um, and those prices have notched down since the period that these numbers reflect. But still, that is uh, in normally when you have presidents unpopular, big economic worries in a midterm election, you're looking at a kind of a catastrophic blowout for the incumbent party. But what this Time Siena poll found was a little different than that. It actually shows a pretty close race for the Congress. Um, showed, I think, Democrats up one point uh, on on like registered voters, maybe down one point on uh, uh uh, likely voters. Now, one thing to keep in mind is, generally speaking, for Democrats to win a congressional election, they've got to be a few points ahead on the congressional generic ballot. Some of that's gerrymandering. Some of it is, uh, you know, some of it's turnout issues. A lot of it is just the urban-rural split in our politics. But basically, when you see, you know, tied, you're like, well, great, 50-50 chance we got this. Well, not really. You really want to see that number, like, a good three or four points ahead for the Democrats. Having said that, though, it shows that the politics of abortion and guns, particularly abortion, is now keeping Democrats in this race for the Congress. It's still an uphill battle, but they're in it. It is counteracting to some extent um, you know, all of those things working against them. Just being a president's first midterm is, 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 is bad enough. If the president's super unpopular, that's even worse. And if the uh, economy is bad, now, is the economy bad? I'm sort of using it, you know, high inflation as a sort of a proxy for the economy is bad. All those together, it should, you know, it, it, it should be catastrophic. Now, what this poll showed, though, is that now, why is that happening? It is driven to a great degree by educated white voters. According to this poll, college-educated college white voters are now supporting Democrats at a higher percentage than non-white voters in general. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big change from what we're you know, used to in general. And it, and it shows to a, a significant extent that abortion politics, the reaction to Roe, is pushing back towards some of that Trump era polarization, where you have um, Republicans doing super well among non-college educated white voters, um, you know, relatively well 
among many non-white voters. Now, obviously, non-white covers a lot of territory, um, but very, very poorly among college-educated whites. So, you know, there's um, there are some signs that abortion politics are now helping Democrats significantly in the midterms. Is it enough so far? No, not close. Um, but it seems to be moving in that direction. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about, you know, we're going to talk about abortion politics generally, um, electoral politics in the states. We're seeing a lot of that. States that are that are are holding uh, referendums, um, you, you know, to put uh, const, you know constitutional amendments, either banning abortion or making abortion legal in their states. A lot of different stuff. So uh, before we get into that, though, uh, oh, and you were also going to talk about, you know, uh, even some kind of weird stuff about government lawyers and and whether uh, government lawyers haven't quite quite gotten uh, haven't quite figured out the new uh, Supreme Court era that we are functioning in. And it's not as obscure as it might sound because it's it's directly uh, relevant to this abortion stuff. But before we uh, get into that, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Uh, as summer drags on, your daily iced coffee can start to taste a little flat. Spice things up and make the switch to Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew iced coffee. Whether you're a bourbon street pro with the beads to prove it, or you can't tell a beignet from a bagel, you'll love the way it tastes. Grady's captures the distinct flavor of New Orleans-style coffee by adding chicory to their coffee beans. Chicory has a light, natural sweetness that makes for a perfect cup of iced coffee that's rich, smooth, and never bitter. Ready to bring the best of the Big Easy home? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, uh, co-host Kate Riga, what are we? What do we got to talk about today? Yeah, let's start in the states where there's been quite a flurry of action. You know, ever since Roe was overturned, there's kind of been this like furious legal scramble underway to determine which state constitutions, you know, cover abortion rights and which don't and fighting over kind of interpreting the text. And why why I think this is like a, a really interesting kind of corner of the whole post-Roe world is that a lot of state constitutions have protections that are much more generous than the U.S. Constitution or have been interpreted more generously. But, you know, for example, like 11 states have explicit privacy protections in their state charters. Um, A lot of them have very robust kind of uh, bodily autonomy traditions. Um, Some have, you know, kind of equal rights sections and all of this stuff, you know, in some states and, and Florida pops to mind, some states that you would expect to be almost abortion inaccessible have actually stayed relatively accessible because of these uh, kind of hefty provisions in their state constitutions that court state courts have interpreted as protecting abortion rights. So, Let yeah. Me, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. So with the, with the states, I think you said 11 states that have some, you know, kind of right to privacy um, – explicitly in 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 their constitutions are are those are those from relatively recent amendments or or actual state constitutions that were rewritten relatively recently in history because even the you know whether or not a right to privacy was in the constitution the language of privacy is a fairly new one in in just in 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 political thinking generally so where when are those from yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Florida specifically, that language was added in the 80s um, and it has been interpreted since to cover abortion. Um, yeah, so 
you know, it's interesting. It, it sets up um, these little battlegrounds uh, in states where otherwise you would think you would probably assume abortion is probably banned already, you know. Um, and in some places, that's given kind of preliminary wins to the the uh, abortion rights side of things. You know, in Minnesota this week, a state court kind of knocked down all these restrictions um, under the the state's different constitutional provisions, mostly their privacy one. In Utah, uh, there was like a preliminary injunction on a trigger ban because their constitution has the privacy, has the bodily autonomy, has the equal treatment of men and women. But also because of the influence of the Mormons in the state, it has a section about explicitly saying individuals have the right to plan their families how they want. So kind of an additional little protection there. And now, of course... This only matters in a so far as the state Supreme Courts interpret the con- state constitutions as protecting this. And as we know, when we've got some whopper state Supreme Courts, um, and that's why actually Florida is going to be really interesting because DeSantis basically remade their whole court. It's uber, uber conservative now. So the idea that they will keep interpreting the state constitution as protecting abortion the way they have since the 80s seems like pr- pretty slight at this point. Um, well, and- and also, I guess... It depends. There's also a calculus there, you know, which, you know, if, it, if it's in a state like Utah, you know, you feel like they're going to find a way, right? They're going to get there. We don't know how they're going to get there, <laughs> yeah. but they're going to they're figure it out. Exactly. In a state like Florida, where I would be pretty confident that if you held a plebiscite, you know, a real plebiscite, not the kind they hold there where like you, you do it and then, the, and then the state legislature says, no, sorry, we, we don't want, we don't, we don't care. Uh, abortion rights would be the majority opinion. So it's it's a, it's it's less clear because like, you know, will the Republicans who run the state do it? Yeah, probably so. But if they need to run legislative races over it or the you know, then it gets a little more, you know, a little more complicated if you have to think through the political chain of events that get you there. Right. Totally. Um, And then there's also this piece that is, I think some people are kind of finding solace in the state constitutions in the short term. But then the flip side of that is state constitutions are way easier to change than the U.S. Constitution. And so that has set off this kind of flurry of action, like you mentioned in your intro about altering the constitutions or putting in an amendment to say either like explicitly this does not cover abortion or it does cover abortion. And that's kind of setting up, we talked about Kansas last week, their amendment vote is August 2nd, Kentucky's voting on one in November, uh, Pennsylvania lawmakers are trying to set one up, a vote up now in 2023 or 2024, same with Iowa. So, you know, it's becoming a real battleground. And then on the other side, you've got blue states doing the opposite. You know, California and Vermont may become the first states to explicitly protect abortion rights in their state constitutions come this fall. Sort of easy. I mean, sort of easy for California. <laughs> you, would you know, think. I mean, it's, 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 it's you know, the, 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 state, the state is completely controlled by the Democrats. So in a sense, they're, they're only, you know, underlining totally. the reality as it stands that, that, that no one's going to pass a law you know, uh, uh, banning, you know, banning abortion. Now I, I I would be curious and this is, I don't, um, certainly if there's a, you know, if there is a Nash, depending on how nationwide things go, whether at a national level, abortion is legal or illegal, but it's not just that because then there's like, you know, 
it's a law, but what kind of law? Or there's a there's a there is a Supreme Court decision, but what exactly does it say? Because the difference between a state law and a state constitution, we, we don't see that a lot, but it is a difference. And, and uh, you know, federal law is supreme regardless. But again, the, the, details, the details make a difference there. But I think, you know, to a great extent, they're just, you know, California or Vermont would just be underlining mm-hmm. the reality as it, as it stands. still worth doing. Totally. But you know, it's not it's not like in um another what we're probably about to talk about was which is Michigan where the voters can sort of say nope, we're not going down that path. We're keeping abortion legal whereas because of gerrymandering and all this kind of stuff, uh, the state legislature is often in Republican hands. But anyway, I don't want to get ahead of us. Yeah, no, totally. I'm glad you brought up Michigan. That's I think another kind of data point like how you opened about how the signs of enthusiasm we're seeing that the abortion politics have created, you know, the kind of the big headline from the Michigan thing is not only did they get the question, you know, collect enough signatures to get this question of does the Constitution protect abortion on the ballot, but they got the most signatures for any amendment vote ever. Someone someone told me, someone who, who knows Michigan politics told me it was, I think, a seventh of the entire population of the oh state. Oh, my God. Like, not even just like voters, like, a, you know, like, like, a, right. like it was 7% or, you know, a very big percentage of the entire voters in the state. And I, and I would think in most cases, although I don't know this for sure in Michigan, that the, um, you know, often you can get just a a referendum on a ballot in a state pretty easily yeah. you get, you know, 50,000 signatures, 100,000 signatures. Obviously, you want to make it a pretty big bar to get, you know, something in the constitution. Um, but they did it and they did it pretty, pretty fast. Yeah, which is interesting because an, a similar effort in Arizona failed massively, like fell far, far short. What was what were they trying to get on though there? Was it, it was, an anti or? No, it was pro-abortion. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Which is interesting because I bet when you do that breakdown, I wouldn't imagine that the general populace of Arizona feels all that differently about abortion than the general populace of Michigan does. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't either. I mean, I could even, you know, we, we talk about red states and blue states and purple states, but those that obviously um, that obscures a lot of details. And we can say, you know, you can say at this point that um, maybe uh, Michigan is a purple, you know, kind of purple bluish state and Georgia is a purple reddish state. But in a lot of ways, I could imagine, you know, which, you know, in which is abortion, uh, abortion rights more popular? I'm not so sure I know. Because again, it's 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 you know you have uh, you have a large African American population in Georgia, um, oh, Arizona. A, I'm no here. I'm talking about Georgia. Oh, okay. like it, it, I'm just saying if you know that I gotcha, for, gotcha, no, gotcha. for no good reason I changed our <laughs> hypothetical from from that to Michigan with, and Georgia. Yeah, I'm here now. <laughs> yeah, but although in Arizona it's kind of the, the point. But the point is in in, in Arizona. Oh God. <laughs> I'm sorry. The I point, really the threw point you is, off The here. point is in 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 Georgia. Um, even though it's still more in the Republican column, you've got a lot of uh, you know educated 
white voters who tend to be very pro-abortion rights and a lot of African-American voters who, you know, very different demographically, but also tend to be. So who, so who knows? It, obs- it obscures, um, it obscures, were, were there, is the, is the signature process just di- different? They need more? It's harder yeah, to do or? That's what I was kind of thinking. Um, this is one that I only kind of looked at briefly while I was pulling together some you know, recent examples of this, but you got to think, I mean, even if when we were talking about Kansas, like even there, which, you know, a, a redder state than all the ones we're talking about, abortion sentiments really mirror the national picture, you know, like most people want abortion and are skeeved out by the idea of late term abortion. That's kind of the general picture. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I think in general, it is true that in all but the very reddest states, Abortion rights are at worst 50-50. You know, it's that it, that's just uh, true in 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 general. So, is there something about Arizona's system of of collecting signatures that it's like harder that explains the difference between them and Michigan? Yeah, well, in this case, so they the newly kind of organized group filed the initiative on May seventeenth, and so then they had to collect to like amass a buffer, 460,000 signatures by July 7th. So from the beginning, it was being kind of characterized as a long shot thing just because of the time buffer. And from everything I've read now, that group is kind of like, okay, well, we'll do it again for the next time it can be put on a ballot kind of Interesting. thing. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder too, because I know in in Michigan, obviously, and this is one of the, one of the reasons a lot of Democrats are sort of upset with the White House, we knew this was coming. You know, we we've known we we've we've known virtually as a guarantee since that leak, uh, you know, in early May, and really we've known this was coming since uh, Judge Barrett went on, went on the court, and in particularly in Michigan, and this is you know kind of gets into what that what that uh, referendum is gonna gonna be about. That Michigan is sort of a a ground zero, the sort of the I mean, for lack of a better word, kind of perfect case for a certain kind of abortion politics because abortion rights are popular in the, in the state, you know, 60% support or more. Um, on the other hand, it's one of these Midwestern state, you know, upper Midwestern states with, you know, heavily gerrymandered state legislatures. Uh, and it's got a Democratic governor who's up for re-election. So this has been, you know, oh, and the, the, the final thing is they, it's not technically a trigger law, They've got one of these old laws on the book. So in effect, it's a trigger law. It'll pop back into effect as soon as Roe was um, was was uh, stricken down. So there you have a case where the population of the state is pro-abortion rights. The politics of the state are you know, anti-abortion rights in the sense of a heavily gerrymandered state legislature. So uh, Gretchen Whitmer who's the governor, has been looking at this for months thinking like, I mean, A, I want to make sure abortion rights are protected in my state, but also seeing the political logic that she can say, hey, if you want to be sure abortion rights are protected in this state, you got to reelect me mm-hmm. because I'm the sort of the single point of failure. If I'm not, you know, if a Democrat doesn't control the governorship, you know, all is lost. So I don't know if that, um, I don't know if that gave them a leg up on the sort of the signature gathering, just because, you know, um, pro-choice and democratic politics has been, 
you know, kind of on alert in Michigan because of that unique set of facts, been alert in Michigan uh, for a long time. Yeah. And it isn't just an interesting through line that, you know, what we've been saying for ages is that the anti-abortion movement has been just far better organized and motivated than the kind of abortion rights side. And there was a good reason for that. You know, I mean, abortion rights people had this kind of fail-safe stopgap for 50 years and the anti-abortion people were on the other side. But it's funny how that continues to be a factor. You know, when I was reporting on the Kansas um, ballot initiative, I just heard from a lot of people that the the side kind of organizing to take down the amendment, which would explicitly say the Constitution doesn't protect abortion rights, was pretty unorganized and pretty slow out of the gate, while the other side was really, really kind of coalesced and had, you know, they even have their side, it's called the value them both amendment and like a lot of kind of mother child imagery on these purple and white signs. And people were just kind of saying anecdotally, they saw those signs everywhere. And then the decision came out overturning Roe and and then they started to see kind of the other side populate more. But it's interesting, you know, and that's kind of, you know, not to to kind of criticize the Arizona group, but it's not a surprise that this was coming. And I don't think it takes a huge political mastery leap to be like, you know what, constitutions are going to be the next battleground here. Maybe we should get working on an initiative. But still, there's just this idea of kind of a fractured coalition that takes a while to get on the same page and takes a while to organize and, and start start the work. Well, you know, one one thing that um, one thing that one context that is important to take into account and you see it more if you've been watching this stuff for a long time. And that is that there was a lot of reason to think that Roe was going to be overturned in the 1980s. Um, you know, uh, uh, j- just as an example, um, I think Ronald Reagan had three court appointees. He had uh, Scalia, O'Connor, and Kennedy. And if you um, if you look at those and say, you know, Reagan's pro life, he's got his three, you know, three pro life people on the court. You look at it and you're like, done and done. You know, okay, it's done. You know, Roe lasted 15 years. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. Anthony Kennedy was not that vote. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was not that vote. And then you have uh, under uh, George uh, George Bush, first George Bush who uh, appointed uh, Souter and Clarence Thomas. Now, Souter is a kind of a funny case because, you know, he was, he had kind of very, you know, I believe he was a state court judge uh, in Vermont, I think. I mean, maybe maybe I'm misremembering and it was New Hampshire or something like that. They kind of found someone pretty obscure that had no paper trail because of abortion rights. Because even in the 80s, it was that thing. And in that case, everybody was, you know, they, 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 it blew up in their face because it turned out he wasn't very conservative. So the point is, the reason I, the reason I raise this, and, and not, for, not for you, Kate, but for our listeners, is that to the extent that people thought, okay, this is never really going to happen, part of that is because 35 years ago, people were saying, we're right there. It's done. Get ready for Roe to be overturned. And uh, it didn't happen for like forever. It didn't have, I mean, again, between Reagan and Bush, 
both of whom were, at least on its face, very committed to appointing pro-life judges. They had in in, in 12 years, they had five judges. And you still have got Rehnquist and you've got other conservative judges hanging on. So it should have happened then. So there's a certain extent to which it was kind of understandable that a lot of people didn't quite believe this would ever happen. Not justifying it, but I mean, there is that history mm-hmm. that it really, by, by a lot of measures, should have happened back in the 1980s and it didn't. And then it should have happened in the 90s and it didn't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, so, the, you know, that plays into it. But there's also this, this extent to which I think to a, to, Another thing that plays into it is that there is a certain aspect of the, I don't know, for lack of a better word, kind of progressive legal mentality in which you say, hey, this is a basic right. It's not, it's not about politics. It's, it's a basic right. I mean, I, 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 rem- I, remember, um, I remember in the, in the period of time when gay marriage was still heavily contested uh, in our politics, say in the decade, basically in the decade between you know uh, two thousand two and was Obergefell two thousand fourteen? I'm remembering the date right. I think it was. Well, r- you know, roughly. In any case, um, I remember twenty fifteen. 2015. I remember there was a lot. One of the biggest discussions there was like it's it's you you can't you can't put a fundamental right on the ballot. It's a fundamental right. It's not political. Well, okay, but like you know, fundamental rights may exist, but they don't exist in the political context unless you hold an election and says it's a fundamental right, or get a judge who can't be overruled to say it. So all of these things, you know play in and probably um i you know left uh state political forces sort of uh you know a little a little slow on the on on the jump when 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 it finally happened that's really interesting was there significant do you remember kind of like anti-abortion angst when these likely looking courts ended up not not oh, doing man. the deed oh big time yeah. big time <laughs> i mean if you have to if you have to i mean Big time. That, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, that is, you know, the Federalist Society goes back prior to a number of the judges that I'm talking about. But to a great extent, that is what the Federalist Society is all about. Because you get like Sandra Day O'Connor, who, you know, had been a state legislator in Arizona, I believe, but I I, I mean, you know, I haven't, I haven't looked at this in a long time. Uh, I think was a judge uh, before that. You have people who kind of like, all right, we got a good conservative here, putting them on the court. And then you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> what happened? You know, and so that was really, uh, and again, Anthony Kennedy. What happened? And, um, y- you know, there's a whole question about what happened. But, but that on the right, again, that's what the Federalist Society thinks. That's what Brett Kavanaugh is about. They start thinking, we're going to fucking breed these guys in a test tube with, with pro-life DNA, so there is no way this can happen. We're going to vet them when they're in law school. We're going we're gonna, to you know, put them in a network of other pro-life, and you know, it's not only uh, abortion politics, it's a series, of, you know, a series of issues, but that was always the driver. And that was the sense of what certainly pro-life 
Americans, uh, you know, pro-life activists, but, you know, Republicans generally saw here, we keep getting betrayed. We, ele- we elect a pro-life president, they nominate someone, and, and what the fuck? How does this happen? So that is really what this whole thing is about. We're going to breed him in a test tube. And and like, you know, again, Brett Kavanaugh from the very, he's not like, oh, he did this and he did that. And then he got sort of like, you know, conservatives thought he was a good guy. No, the, they're all bred in a test tube. And that's, that's what that's about. Because yeah, were they pissed? They were really pissed. And, you know, in a certain sense, you understand why they're pissed. You know, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, and 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 you know, I think I think um, one of the reasons, and this goes back into this goes back to some of what the corruption of the current court is about. Um, if you are, if you are a judge and um, approaching the Constitution in its totality, thinking about the role of judi- of the judiciary more broadly in American public life thinking about precedent you get on the court and you say you know what i don't think that was i don't think that was uh i don't think roe was a good decision but now we've had 20 20 years or 30 years or now almost 50 years of it being there and it's kind of embedded in our law it's embedded in the society and we're not just going to say nope bad decision throw it out which is what this court did say just kind of say like, you know what? No, no, and no, and we're just going to tear it out. Um, so that's you know, there's a whole there's a whole backstory here, and it's it's complicated. That's it's funny because it, I think it informs two different things. One is I remember I did a story like six months ish after Barrett had been confirmed, and I talked to all these kind of anti-abortion people who were like, "Hey, what the fuck." Why haven't you gotten rid of Roe yet? Like they were super concerned about the kind of quote unquote silence of the court, which is so funny because I remember even thinking at the time, like, relax, you probably just figured out where the bathrooms are. Like, I'm sure it's coming, you know, but that's yeah, funny because yeah. there's so much scar tissue there from, from that. No, it, it's absolutely. And again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shedding a tear for them, but you can understand why they, they, they felt that sense of like, Hey, we, we already packed the court. Why don't we have our decision here? <laughs> right. And that's the thing is that you, you know, you, 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 they end up deciding, again, we're going to breed them from youth. We're not going to leave anything to chance. And I think the other piece of it that that informs for me is like the quickness on the right to kind of like disavow the various conservatives if they like dare to join with the liberals on. And we're talking, you know, not the the big wattage cases, but like more medium to small things when you'll have like Roberts and Kavanaugh say join with the libs. And mm-hmm. there's this like outpouring of kind of you can have him like traitor, rhino, all this stuff. And you're kind of like, dude, he's voted the way you wanted him to on everything you really care about. But it's just like even the slightest, you know, unorthodoxy, like the slightest toe out of line. They're just like another suitor, you know, <laughs> just like red well, crying to panic. Yeah, no. And that that's the, um, I mean, you can, on, on the one hand, look, we're in a very polarized society. If you would, if you would had like, you know, a Breyer or a Kagan, you know, join the gun rights decision, you'd have a lot of liberals thinking, holy crap, what's going on here? But it also shows how uh, the modern conservative movement and particularly uh, 
the people who are who are there to a great extent for pro-life politics see the court like hey we hired you for a job you know what's going what's going on here we hired you to you know you need to support our decisions um so that is you know that's 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 definitely a thing. And, and you know, Souter particularly, because, you know, again, I, I can't describe how much it was at the time Democrats and liberals were really pissed because they're saying, hey, you brought this guy, you know, out of traffic court up in New England and you want to, I mean, and to give Souter, that's not true. I believe he was, um, I believe he was on a state Supreme Court in either Vermont or New Hampshire. He ended up being a very accomplished uh, justice. My point is, no one knew anything about him. And he did not have a case record on the big national political things. So Democrats were like, man, this guy, they they called him a stealth nominee, you know, but what ended up happening is the, I think, you know, I think it was New Hampshire because I I believe it was uh, John Sununu, the uh, Mm -hmm. father of the current governor, who was uh, chief of staff at the point, or maybe had been chief of staff. And so he kind of like, hey, I got, this is my bud from New Hampshire. So probably New Hampshire. In any case, as I said, they ended up fooling themselves because he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't just like Kennedy or O'Connor who was, who was, you you know, kind of flexible and more kind of precedent oriented. Uh, You know, conservatives would point out, I mean, hey, Kennedy wrote the the marriage equality decision, right? Uh, but Souter was was very much. He wasn't a, a, a swing justice by the end. He was a part of the liberal block, you know. So man, that was a miss. Oh well. Yeah. Well, this is a, a good segue to the other piece we wanted to talk about, which are various struggles to embrace the reality of the court as it is. Um, and we. Uh, two different blocks have kind of worked their way into the ed blog. On the one hand, we have kind of government lawyers. And then on the other, we have the administration. So you want to give us kind of little synopses of what's going on there? Yeah. So, you know, we've been talking about the current Supreme Court as either corrupted or just uh, or basically a renegade or out of control court. That they are just, you know, kind of have have left behind any sense of calling balls and strikes. They're not even trying to pretend anymore, basically. And so one of, you know, and and, uh, I think for many people until quite recently, the idea that you would uh, curtail the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court or that you would add new justices over nine justices, that these seem pretty radical things. Like, what are you thinking? That's, that's totally, you know, that's, that's, that's crazy stuff. And, um, one of our readers who is this person is a uh, a DC based lawyer who has all sorts of professional experience to make these judgments wrote in and explained to us that you know when you see when you see the Biden White House um, seemingly caught so flat-footed um, you know you see articles where it says you know they're 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 being very cautious because they don't want to get the court to rule against them and from the outside, a lot of us are like, what planet are you on? Like, what, what, what framework are you operating in where that makes any sense? I mean, you know, it's, it's better that the court not overrule you, but like, give it a try. I mean, wh- why are you, you know, what do you, what, what's that about? What this person um, explained, and I think it's something that we kind of, that would be logical to us, most of us, if we thought about it, that 
uh, government lawyers, the people who work in White House counsel's office, the white people who work in the DOJ are in this framework where you are thinking of the Supreme Court as basically a body that is calling balls and strikes about constitutional law. It's not that they have no politics. It's not how. It's not that they have no ideology. Of course they do. But broadly speaking, they are looking with a coherent sort of theory of the Constitution, and they're saying, "Okay, no, you can't do that. You can do this, but you can't do that," et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in that context, it makes sense to you don't you don't want to do a lot of things you know they're going to strike down because that does a couple things. One, it at a at a sort of a somewhat superficial professional level, it kind of makes people think either you're not a good lawyer or you're not a terribly ethical lawyer if you're constantly getting swatted down. But more than that, if you are dealing, you know, with with balls and strikes, you don't want to keep getting struck down because then you're going to you're going to get the judges thinking that you're not, you know, you're not playing fair. And and um, that you really don't care what's constitutional. And then they're going to start looking more closely because they're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. So you want to you want to be operating within the you know within the lanes for a lot of reasons, um, for sort of professional ethical reasons, but just on the level of like you don't want to you don't want to piss them off basically in the way that you don't want to piss a referee off, right? Because then they're gonna they're gonna look at you really hard, and if you are in that basic balls and strikes framework, that makes sense. You know, one other thing besides balls and strikes is um, government lawyers are often very cautious about presenting courts with bad sets of facts that can that can yield bad decisions, right? A kind of a unique set of facts that that produces a decision that has all sorts of negative effects down the line. So for both those reasons, all of that, that kind of caution, like, okay, what can we do that the court is not going to strike down makes sense. But if it turns out that the courts is actually trying to make you lose, if they're not calling balls and strikes, they want to stop you from doing anything or, or they just want to make you lose, well, then the whole calculus changes. Then if you are not doing things that you think they may strike down, you're not doing anything. And that has also a very perverse political impact, which is to say, now, when you are the White House basically sitting on your hands, it's not making anybody think the court is illegitimate or corrupt or needs to be reined in. It's making people who support you think, what the fuck are you doing? You're just sitting there. So it tends to delegitimize the president or the political movement that supports the president. So in that context, if, if you start to see that that is what the court is doing, trying to make you lose, then you shouldn't worry at all about whether they're going to strike down what you, what you say. Because if they do, that will tend to delegitimize the court. No, not everything. If you do something totally crazy, it's not going to. But if, you know, and this is, this is what the, a lot of the political calculus is about passing a row law. Like if the court is going to basically keep making up new rules that just say you can't, you know, the majority can't have its will in any way, well, make them do that. Because then you get people saying, you know what, this Supreme Court is not, is not playing, uh, 
is not is not balls and strikes. They are just trying to prevent the majority from 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 getting their um, from exercising their will and uh, kind of making up new rules as they go to get them to to that outcome. So that's kind of you know th- that is what we're talking about here. Do do government lawyers, do White House lawyers, and to a certain extent, the legal profession in general, to the extent you're kind of operating in a constitutional framework, are they having a hard time kind of getting up to date with not the idealized Supreme Court, but the actual Supreme Court that we have right now? Yeah, I think this is so interesting to me because it also just informs a lot of other stuff that's going on. Like we were talking about Biden's approval numbers earlier, and I saw... I don't know if it was the same poll you were talking about, but some poll had asked people whether Biden should run again, had asked Democrats. And the numbers with young people, like somewhere in the 90s, said (laughs) no. You know, really, really. Almost, almost, not even overwhelming, almost like unanimous. Like North Korea numbers, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, as one of those young people myself who like the first kind of congressional dynamics that I knew about were when Obama was president. It's just this idea of like clinging to this old faith and institutions. It really is just, I think, really foreign to people my age and younger because it's just like you've never seen an institution that is just, you know, calling balls and strikes or that isn't just kind of nakedly tainted by political interest. So it's almost like this gap that makes it hard for the generations to communicate with each other because you see Biden kind of being like, well, you know, I got along with segregationists, like I have Republican friends. And you're kind of like, why is that a virtue to you? Because, you know, my oldest memories are of like McConnell's whole Obama's going to be a one-term president stuff. It's just it's just a profound disconnect that I think, you know, works at the court level, works at the congressional level, all throughout our kind of federal government where these just vestiges of the idea like you say the idealized court or the idealized congress, it just sounds almost like unhinged to anyone who's paying attention now or who's mostly steeped in current politics because it just feels so completely at odds with reality. You, you know, it's it's uh, we're obviously different ages, but the thing I remember from the Obama mm-hmm. era, uh, just one incident, but I can't remember the congressman's name. Can't remember if he's still in office. I don't think he is for some reason. But in any case, think from North Carolina, the guy who got up in Obama's first or second State of the Union and just said and shouted in his face, "You lie." Mm-hmm. And one thing that one thing for, for our listeners, when you see when you see the house where the you know where the president gives State of the Union, when you see it on TV, it looks like this kind of you know big kind of auditorium, big big, and and that's kind of uh, that is kind of accentuated by um, how many different TV cameras there are. You got the one looking up at the president. You got the you know the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the president's family in this in the seats. You've got the one looking at all the members. You've got the one looking at just this member, and you've got one looking at uh, you know looking at the president talking. It's pretty small. It's a pretty small space. You'd be surprised. I guarantee you, if you have not physically been there, when you go in, you'll say, "Wow, this is pretty small." So when someone in the audience says, "You lie," it's <laughs> this isn't like you're at the Coliseum. Or like, you know, some big stadium or something. It's like shocking. And that to me 
that that's sort of the anecdote that tells the story, even though it was only, you know, only, only one person that you, I mean, to me, it's not so much, and this is, I think, semantic to a certain extent. To me, it's not so much institutions. It's whether the people on the other side of the conversation have a belief in the, a belief in the institutions that if not overrides, at least has some standing along with your partisan affiliations. Totally. And so, you know, when you have like, oh, you know, and I, and I will say this, it's also important to keep in mind that when someone like Joe Biden says, oh, my Republican friends, I like working with Republicans, that's not just naivete. That is also because there is a significant slice of the electorate for better or not who likes hearing that. And you've got to kind of signal to those people. But it's not just that. And, and that is why, you know, I had a conversation with a reader about this a few days ago about, you know, with Merrick Garland. You know, at the end of the day, there was nothing the Obama White House was going to be able to do to get Mitch McConnell to give Merrick Garland a hearing. It goes back to what we were just talking about. Obama had what they wanted and they were not going to they were not going to let him have it. They were going to get it back no matter what. Having said that, there were people in the Obama White House, maybe Obama themselves, who said, "Well, we're going to, you know, we're going to put Mitch in a tough position by giving him a kind of, you know, an older kind of moderate-ish guy, we're really going to put the squeeze on him." And you're like, "Dude, no. <laughs> you're not putting any squeeze on anybody." And that, you know, so that that is a big generational thing and it's always important you can't demoralize your own political supporters and if you're kind of you also have to you have to keep some level of realism with your political supporters right i mean you're not going to get joe manchin to change his vote you're just not and 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 being mean and doing whatever that's not going to do anything but you also can't be in this case where like you're like, oh, what are you know, you need you can't be in a position where where people are really upset and the leader of your team is just kind of doing nothing or appearing to do nothing. That really freaks people out. And I think for younger voters, you know, look, I think there's a certain framework in which younger voters could be big supporters of an older president. You know, like a Bernie. Yeah, he's not for, he's not really the future. He's an old guy, but he's kind of he's he's a fighter or he's this or he's that. But when you have this perception which is based on some real realities that they're just not acting, you add in the fact you're like, man, this guy could be like my great-grandfather. That's not going to help. It's just not. So something I've been thinking a lot about is there are all these constraints on action that Democrats can take that, you know, we're well versed in our listeners are well versed in, you know, Senate basically being an inoperable, this hostile Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I've just been wondering that if the emotional reaction to Roe from Biden and the other Democratic standard bearers was different, if that would have any effect on how people and especially young people are seemingly so feeling so let down by the Democrats. Like, in the moments, you know, you have things like uh, Warren going out with the protesters in front of the Supreme Court and, and being visibly angry. And, you know, this is something that like AOC is famously good at. I just, so much is out of their control, you know, or is thwarted by these different like institutional obstacles that just make life harder for Democrats than Republicans. But I don't know. I just, I wonder if, if there had been more of an emotional response, if people would feel differently. You know, 
I have to think, I mean, it, it, I think it sort of depends on what we mean by emotional. Um, I, I, you know, even when, when Joe Biden gets ups, upset about things, he's like, yeah. I'm not going to take this malarkey. Right. I mean, it sort of, it goes to the generational stuff. He gets, he gets upset in kind of a, in, in a sort of a quaint, weird way. But I would, um, I think the answer is yes, but maybe in a slightly mediated way, which is to say, and I, I think this is why there's such a, a hunger for saying, we're going to get all the senators lined up. We're going to, you know, put this on the ballot, you know, they 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 made their decision there's we cannot undo this now we're going to do you know we're going to do what executive orders we can but we're the majority and so we need to make clear that we're the majority and this is this is the plan and if we can mobilize we are going to undo this next january you know here's the plan i'm going to i'm going to tell all the senators hey you got it you you got to completely get on board we're going to we need to give people a a roadmap to how we're going to undo this terrible thing. And here's, here's the plan. Let's do it. Let's, let's, you know, let's all pull up our sleeves and let's do it. I think that is what, you know, showing emotion is important too. Different people can show emotion in different ways with different levels of, you know, plausibility. But I think more of that, I mean, the reality is there's just not a lot that they can do right now with executive orders for the obvious reasons. I mean, A, there's just not, fundamentally, there's not that much you can do. Um, absent a absent a Supreme Court ruling, there's just not that much executive orders can do to get in the way of states just saying abortion is illegal. Some, but not a lot. So I think it's that basic sense of saying, here's the plan. And, and it's, it's not going to be easy, but we can undo this. We are not powerless here. And everything that's happening kind of sounds like we're powerless. Mm-hmm. We're going to do these little things at the margins. We're going to say we're going to fight. We're going to be upset. Um, but at the end of the day, they won and we lost and we're screwed. Yeah. And that's a bad feeling. Yeah, it's just interesting to me because Biden is so profoundly good at grief. You know, he's so, for obvious reasons, is just so believable when he's in mourning with other people. But I watched his speech where he unveiled the executive order on abortions and the part where he got really visibly emotional is when he was talking about that horrible story about the 10-year-old girl who was raped and had to travel out of state to get an abortion. And It just, it kind of struck me because, yeah, it's like the worst story you can hear, you know, but it's just, it's interesting. I think that the part of the situation that made him so angry was the child endangerment, this idea of this little girl being so profoundly hurt as kind of separate from, I guess, this greater sense of, you know, harm or, or danger. It was, it was just kind of, it was just interesting to me that that is what really prompted him to kind of show everyone how he was feeling. Um, And I don't know. I don't know if it's a generational thing or just this kind of successful, I think, vestige of the anti-abortion movements, like making people just uncomfortable with abortion in general and and uncomfortable with abortion, with with the idea of any abortion that isn't 
a quote unquote good abortion, you know, a, right. an abortion right. that is it's it was beyond your control from the beginning. Uh, sex isn't a part of it. It's, it's really just about violence, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I you know, there's, uh, you know, in a way, both sides focus on extraordinary cases. Right. You have the you have the uh, pro-life types talking about, oh, you know, do we really have to have abortions in the eight month of pregnancy and all, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. And you have people on the choice side talking, you know, these, as you said, horrific stories about, oh, this girl's 11 years old. She was raped by her father. Now she's going to have to, you know, carry this baby to term or she's going to have to travel a thousand miles to get the medical care she needs, or this woman has an ectopic pregnancy, and and you know Alabama is going to uh, force her to to carry that to term, even though you can't carry an ectopic. Right. All, all these kind of things, and uh, you, you know, there's certainly a logic in pointing out the horrors that are embedded in someone's, you know, someone's uh, position. But yeah, I mean, I think people. Younger people, but I don't think only younger people, look at what Biden said there and said, yeah, that's horrific. But how about I just want to have access to an abortion? Like, because I am sexually active and if I get pregnant and then I want to get an abortion, why are we talking about this 11-year-old? Like that, you know, and and some of that is, um, you know, some of that is, some of that is generational, I think. Um, I mean, a lot of it is generational, but not all, but not, not entirely generational. Um some of it goes back to that sort of uh, 90s era, you know, uh, safe, legal, and rare. Um, but it is also true that there is a, a, a sort of middle faction in American politics that wants abortion to be legal, but also doesn't want to hear about it. Right. Doesn't want to and thinks it's kind of, you know, icky, both in the sort of, you know, traditionalist sexual sense and also in in every sense. And so politically, there is a certain logic to appealing to those people. We may not like that they feel that way, but they, they you know, depending on how you sort of slice the electorate, they, they are part of the majority that you need, you know, that you need to hold. I think, you know, to, to a certain extent, though, it signals a political weakness that is not necessary to signal. And part of that is, I mean, part of that's because the pro-abortion right side is the majority. Mm -hmm. It wasn't always the case. It, it, it wasn't always as clear the case. It clearly is the case now. And one thing the pro-abortion right side can appeal to is the status quo. It is, it is, there is always an inherent strength to, hey, why are we upsetting the apple cart? We've had a way we've been doing this for 50 years. Let's just not change it. And that, that has a political, that has a political strength to kind of like, we're not talking about any crazy new thing. Mm -hmm. We're just talking about just keeping things as they are. And we want to keep things as they are. So I, I think in, in, in some cases, I think what, what, would have been uh, politically a better angle uh, or, you know, kind of messaging wise to, it seems, feels kind of tawdry to reduce this stuff to messaging, but would be to say, we've had this, we've had this model in the United States for half a century. Almost 
every woman alive right now has lived her, you know, lived her adult life under this set of rules. Suddenly, these people are coming along and saying, we want to change the rules. But they're the minority. We're the majority. So we need to say, no, you're not going to change the rules that all of us are used to because you're the, we're the majority. And we have an election coming up. And here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. And I at least think that's very empowering. You kind of think, all right, we're not... We're not begging here. We're not having to sort of plead our case about about little girls who are horribly violated. We're the majority, so fuck this. We're going to have an election. Let's do this. Um, and that, again, I think that is that sort of signals. We're not. We're not bashful. We don't have any. We're not ashamed of anything. We don't have to kind of not say what we want. We're the majority. We just want to keep things as they are. And that that signals some positive stuff that I think would have been a much better uh, way to approach this. And again, that's that's why I think it's so important to focus this on an election, because even though it's going to be a hard election to win for all the reasons we know, that it is a real opportunity to just win the whole game really quick. And that gets people charged up and gives them somewhere to channel their fear and outrage and anger and all that stuff. And I think what we've seen to a great extent is that without a place to, to channel that, it's literally, you know, literally, it has overflowed within the Democratic coalition. Mm -hmm. And it's all going on Biden. And it's going on Dick Durbin. And it's going on Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Because it hasn't been given an outlet, and that's that's that was not necessary, and it's it's bad politics, and it's also not effective politics in the sense of actually getting the chance to change this. Yeah. All right. Oh, well, this episode we we traveled. Yeah. Well, we're you know there's the everything is everything in our politics uh, right now is kind of topsy turvy and 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 going and everywhere totally at once. Totally interconnected. <laughs> exactly. And that's we 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 perfectly replicated that in this in this episode. Precisely. Uh, let me remind you that uh Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is sponsored the Josh Marshall podcast. You can get twenty five percent off at Grady's Cold Brew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady's Cold Brew.com with promo code TPM. All right. I guess that's it. See you next later. Week. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.